Well, welcome everyone to the Cato Institute, everybody here at the Hayek Auditorium, everybody who is joining us uh, online, and those of you who are following on Twitter using the hashtag SchoolChoiceRegs, again that's hashtag SchoolChoiceRegs, and I, I understand that our panelists have already been tweeting back and forth, so there was sort of a pregame if you were on Twitter. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at Cato. Um, and a couple of months ago, uh, a bombshell dropped on school choice. It was a random assignment study, what we typically call a gold standard study, with negative findings about a voucher program. This is the first time this has ever happened. Then a couple of weeks ago, Another report, this time from, from our friend Patrick Wolf over there, uh, and Jonathan Mills of Doug Harris's group, the Education Research Alliance for New Orleans, came out with also negative findings. So no more could we say what we've said for a long time, that 11 out of 12 random assignment studies have found uh, neutral or positive effects, or I should say positive effects for uh, vouchers, and none has found a negative effect. No longer could we say that, or we could say that, and we'd be lying. So we choose not to say that. Um, perhaps, though, the, the good news, to the extent there's good news here, is that there were suddenly, yes, two studies, but they were only about one program, the Louisiana Scholarship Program, a voucher program, of course, in Louisiana, serving relatively low-income kids from public schools rated C or below on the state uh, rating system. And it's very important to note that this is not the only school choice program in Louisiana. Uh, there's also a uh, tuition deduction program, your scholarship your tuition deduction program. Uh, there's a choice program specifically for exceptional children and a tuition donation rebate program. So this is not the only choice program in Louisiana. Anyway, so what's the good news about two studies but only one program? Well, what it means is quite possibly the problems that the research has found may not be inherent to school choice, but restricted to this one program. Indeed, I think as we're going to hear debated today, what it could be is that this program, rather than having too much freedom, may have too little. We may find that more uh, broader, more powerful choice may be what we need. Now, let me introduce the panelists uh, in the order they speak. After they're done speaking, I'll ask probably a question or two, then I'm going to hand it over to you, the audience. Uh, typically what you hear is, please only ask a question. I've decided it's impossible to meet that very high bar. So I'll let people, if you have a little bit you want to say, if you have an opinion, go ahead and voice it. If you go too long, then I'll cut you off. Um, but don't feel like you only have to ask a question, but please do have a question in there. Um, uh, so then I'll hand it to you, and of course, again, anybody who is following on Twitter using hashtag SchoolChoiceRegs, we have somebody in the audience who will be tracking that Twitter account, and if you have questions, she'll raise your hand, and we'll try and get to your questions as well. Now, let's talk about our panelists. Uh, the first one, over here on my right, uh, is Patrick Wolf. He's the Distinguished Professor of Education Policy and 21st Century Endowed Chair in School Choice at the University of Arkansas. He mainly leads or assists with rigorous longitudinal evaluations of private school voucher programs. Wolf has, co -author, or has authored or co-authored four books and over 110 journal articles, book chapters, and policy reports on school choice, civic values, public management, special education, and campaign finance. 
His latest book is The School Choice Journey, School Vouchers and the Empowerment of Urban Families. He received his PhD in political science from Harvard University in 1995 and previously taught at Columbia and Georgetown. A little known fact, Pat was also the external reader uh, on my dissertation, and he wrote the following. I want to make sure I get this exactly right. He said, quote, this is the finest example of scholarship I have ever encountered. I should be studying at his feet, and he's standing in judgment of me. Yeah. It's also possible that's not true. Uh, in fact, it isn't. What is true, though, is in a recent email to this group here, he wrote, gentlemen, and in the case of McCluskey, I used that term very loosely, and then went on to say other things. And so he will pay for that until he says something like I made up him saying about my dissertation. Uh, our next panelist is Doug Harris, right here to my left. He's the professor of economics, the Schleider Foundation Chair in Public Education, and founder and director of the Education Research Alliance for New Orleans at Tulane University. His research has influenced policy and practice on test-based accountability for teachers in schools, value-added measures, charter schools and market-based reforms, and college access programs. Currently, his work with ERA New Orleans focuses on the unprecedented post-Katrina school reforms. He's also conducting a large randomized trial of a Promise Scholarship in Milwaukee. Value-added measures in education, his first book, was nominated for the National Grabemeyer Prize in Education. He's advised governors in six states, testified in the U.S. Senate, and advised the U.S. Department of Education White House on multiple education policies. His work is also widely cited in national media in a list that is, believe me, way too long to recite here. Um, of everyone here, I think Doug is the only person I don't know pretty well, so I'm especially hearing the interest and excited to hear what you have to say, because unfortunately I know what everyone else has to say. Um, next in our order is Jason Bedrick. He's a policy analyst with the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Uh, he previously served as a legislator in the New Hampshire House of Representatives. In other words, he was an elected politician, or what we like to call part of the problem. <laughs> However, he was also an education policy research fellow at the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy, or what we like to call part of the solution. Uh, Bedrick has published numerous studies on educational choice programs with organizations such as the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice and the Pioneer Institute, and his opinion work has been featured in sundry print outlets. Bedrick received his master's degree in public policy from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He was a fellow at the Taubman Center for state and local government. Uh, finally, I should note, especially for people who are very familiar with Cato, uh, Jason is one of several, several heavily bearded Cato employees. It's easy to confuse him with uh, guys like Adam Bates. Adam Bates handles criminal justice. Given the ease of confusion, Jason is prepared to answer questions about incarceration <laughs> or what it was like to be a walk-on in the University of Miami Hurricanes football team which is what Adam Bates actually was. Good luck with that. Finally, we have Michael Petrilli, um, someone everyone who follows Cato's education work ought to know, as he is probably, I would say by far, our greatest frenemy, as the kids like to say. Uh, astonishingly, wrong, astonishingly wrong on such matters of the common core and accountability and school choice. The only thing he'd, he had ever done right is emulated my no hair haircut and as you can see, he's attempting to grow hair again. 
He is a flip-flopper. So his one redeeming quality has now disappeared. Um, in all seriousness, Mike is a ter terrific education expert. He's also a great sport for always showing up here and taking abuse. Uh, and he's also always has very insightful things to say. Uh, more formally, Mike is the president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and author of The Diverse Schools Dilemma, A Parent's Guide to Socioeconomically Mixed Public Schools, and co-editor of Knowledge at the Core, Don Hirsch, Core Knowledge and the Future of the Common Core. Petrilli is also a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and executive editor of Education Next. He's published opinion pieces in numerous outlets and is a ubiquitous education commentator in broadcast media. Petrilli helped to create the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Innovation and Improvement and Policy Innovators and Education Network, and long, long ago, I didn't realize this, the Young Education Professionals. And another little known fact, I went to an early meeting of the Young Education Professionals, and they said, hey you, get out of here. You're not young, and you are not acting professional. And so with that, I will hand it now over to Patrick Wolf. All right. Thank you, Neil. Um, and Neil did write an excellent dissertation. It's the best dissertation on education reform completed outside of the University of Arkansas in many years. So I'll give you that. All right. Uh, okay. So I have to start with this disclaimer that the opinions expressed here are my own and do not represent the official positions of the University of Arkansas. Uh, universities get regulated, too. But mainly, I'm here to talk about the Louisiana Scholarship Program, or LSP. It is a private school voucher program that provides a voucher worth up to 90% of the state and local allocation or the tuition charged at the private school. On average, these uh, vouchers are about $5,000 a year. To be eligible, students have to come with a, from a family whose income is at or below 250% of the poverty line, and they have to have attended a public school graded C or below using the state accountability system in the previous year or be a rising kindergartner. Uh, the program includes a robust set of government regulations on the participating private schools, and that's much of what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, in the first year of statewide implementation, the state deemed 10,000 of their applicants eligible for the program, and they awarded about 5,000 voucher placements. And the students received their vouchers and placement in a preferred private school uh, through a single lottery, a, a deferred admission placement lottery. Uh, so so, so they, were, they were voucherized and placed in their preferred school simultaneously. But less than a third of the private schools in the state of Louisiana agreed to participate in the first year. Since then, some have joined the program, but the current participation rate is still uh, right about 40%. So a minority of private schools in Louisiana participate in this program. Uh, the LSP regulations include preclearance of private schools on such factors as their enrollment trends, their finances, student mobility, and any health and safety sort of concerns. Those can all disqualify a private school from participating at the front end. They cannot apply their admission standards to the voucher students. They have to accept every voucher student who seeks access to their school. Uh, they cannot require the top-up of the voucher they have to accept the voucher as the full cost of educating each voucher child. And they must administer the state test 
to all their voucher students and report the results at the grade and school level if they have more than 10 voucher students in a given tested grade. Finally, these schools, these private schools are sanctioned by the state if their scores are low. Now, um, there are pro and con arguments to the regulatory apparatus that is built into the LSP. And I need to be careful here because if I get the pro-regulation argument wrong, then Mike is going to assign me a grade of F and kick me out of the program. If I get the anti-regulation argument wrong, then Neil and Jason are going to vote against me with their feet. So I've got to be really careful here. The pro-regulation argument is basically incentivizing behavior from above. Basically, the regulations seek to guarantee access for disadvantaged students. Uh, they seek uh, avenue and mechanisms for monitoring the performance of these private schools and protect student welfare in the process. And they seek to ensure accountability for receipt of government money. Those are kind of the basic arguments in just, to justify the, the, the regulatory apparatus. The con argument is that we really should instead be incentivizing behavior from below, that we should make it the responsibility of parents to provide accountability for this school choice program. Uh, the, the con arguments are that the regulatory system discourages the participation of higher quality schools, it limits the choices available to parents, reduces school autonomy, and places an administrative burden on the schools. So I think through all this, the elephant in the room that Neil alluded to is the Louisiana Elementary and Secondary School tuition deduction. This is a policy established in the state in 2008, and it permits the deduction of 100% of the tuition paid by a family on their state, their Louisiana state income tax return up to $5,000. So if they paid $5,000 for private school tuition, they get, um, they, they are excused from paying any state taxes on that amount that they've paid. And this really allows a lot of, it, it basically provides state support for private schooling in Louisiana without an official program, a voucher program like the LSP. And over 100,000 taxpayers participate in this program annually. So this is a graph of enrollments in school voucher programs, specifically school voucher programs in Louisiana over the last eight years. And you see that something pretty big happened at the end of 2011-12. Prior to that, the enrollments were through the New Orleans pilot program. This was a means-tested voucher program limited to the city of New Orleans. And that, but that ended in 11-12 and was expanded statewide to be the Louisiana Scholarship Program. And you see this big surge in enrollments immediately after that expansion. Our study, our evaluation, starts with the baseline year of 11-12 and tracks the first cohort of students over the first two years of participation. And you see that enrollment in the program actually peaked in 2014-15 and has since declined somewhat. Our evaluation is a gold standard random assignment study. So basically it focuses on students whose lottery, whose placement in a private school was determined by random lottery. 
The outcomes we look at are achievement gains on the LEAP or ILEAP. These are the state assessments that are uh, imposed for accountability purposes. And we look in the areas of English language arts and math because all of the previous voucher experiments have looked at uh, reading and math. ELA is essentially reading in this case. We also are going to examine later effects on educational attainment because voucher programs increasingly, voucher studies increasingly are looking at long-term outcomes like educational attainment and actually finding more positive effects of private school choice in the area of attainment than in the area of achievement. Our sample is limited to the 1,600 of those 10,000 uh, cohort one students who were randomized through the lottery and are in grades three through six so that they have the test score uh, continuum that we need to do this assessment. And we hope to track these students for seven years after the lottery. This is really our findings all in one graph. Uh, and, and basically, this graph has, has three points in time, three data points that communicate three important things. The first on the far left is that the lottery worked. Basically, what we do for purposes of explicating these results is we set the control group performance, the group of students who lost the lottery, their performance is always the 50th percentile. We establish that as the 50th percentile and then compare the performance of the voucher students to that reference point. So when you see the 50th percentile all the way across the graph, that is the control group performance that we're using for comparison. And at baseline, the voucher students performed almost exactly the same as the control group. The, the, the small difference in average performance was within the confidence uh, interval, and so it was statistically uh, insignificant. We can say that, that these two groups were randomized properly at baseline. But something important happened from baseline to year one, and that is the test scores, the relative test score gains of the voucher students were lower than the test score gains of the control group. By eight percentiles in ELA, a statistically significant drop, and by a whopping 26 percentiles in math, which is a very large statistically significant drop. But a third very important thing happened, and that is from year one to year two, there was a positive trajectory in the gains for the voucher students. So they lost a lot of ground relative to the control group from baseline to year one. They made up some of that ground from year one to year two. They only made up one percentile in reading, but it was enough to push the confidence interval across the 50-yard the line, you might say, and to make the reading effects in year two statistically insignificant, so basically uh, zero. But for math, the uh, reading drop remained, but it was, it was diminished to 13 percentiles because of that positive trend from year one to year two. So what might explain the drop? One is student adjustment. We know from other studies that students lose an average of about 5% of a standard deviation in achievement the year after, immediately after they switch schools for any reason. And these students were all, these voucher students all had to switch schools to participate in the program. So about 10% of that first year drop could be attributed to school switching, a school switching penalty. About 30% might be attributed to a public school testing advantage of a number of forms. And I suspect Doug's going to speak more in more detail about this. But basically, the control group students in the traditional public schools are in schools that are more accustomed 
to administering the state test and whose curriculum is more closely aligned to the state test. So basically, the voucher students were demonstrating poor performance on the test in which uh, the traditional public schools sort of build their curriculum. So, so they, they, they performed less well on the public school test. And maybe 30% of that big drop could be attributed to the lack of test prep and the lack of curricular alignment. About 10% of the initial drop might be attributed to other public school reforms that are succeeding in the state of Louisiana, particularly the surge in performance of charter schools, public charter schools in New Orleans. And finally, about 5% of that initial drop could be attributed to the competitive effects of the voucher program itself, in spurring competition, inspiring public schools themselves to get better. We, we were able to detect some small effects, um, of competitive effects of the program under some circumstances, but they are not consistently statistically significant and they're not large. So that leaves private school quality as a possible explanation for about the other half of that first year drop. And there is some evidence that uh, lower quality private schools disproportionately join this program. Uh, but we really don't have enough empirical evidence to say conclusively, in my view, that it, 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 was, it, was, it was private school quality um, or how big the effect of private school quality really was on that initial jump. Uh, that initial drop. And a final possible explanation, as Neil suggested, is, is we could take this study as evidence that vouchers are bad. Uh, but its findings are contradicted by both the one and first year to second year trend in our, in our longitudinal study itself, and also from uh, 11 of 12 uh, other studies that have been done using gold standard methods uh, of other choice programs. So to put it all together, the Louisiana Scholarship Program is unique. Now, every scholarship program is unique, but you might say that the LSP is more uniquer uh, for want of actual words uh, that I could use. Uh, it competes with a large tax deduction program. It has a robust set of regulations on the schools. It has low levels of school participation, and it has an initial negative achievement effect um, that then starts improving over time. We haven't seen this before in any other voucher program or evaluation. Uh, now, the overregulation hypothesis could explain the initial drop in scores, but not necessarily the recovery. And the proregulation hypothesis could explain the recovery, but maybe not entirely the initial drop. Uh, I really think that the year three results are going to go a long way towards resolving this debate. And I'm delighted that we have that data in hand. We're going to be carefully analyzing it, and we should have more to add to this discussion uh, in a few months. Thank you. Thanks, Pat, and thanks, Neil. So this is my first time at Cato, and we'll see after what I have to say whether this is my last time at Cato. Um, I'm taking careful notes. All right. Well, you've got it on video, right? Uh, well, I want to thank Pat for doing these studies and for, uh, for working with us and releasing them and, and communicating the results uh, in Baton Rouge. There's active discussion right now, as you might imagine, about what to do with the voucher program next. And I think uh, this, this set of studies, so Pat was really talking about one of four studies about the voucher program. I think one of the things I really like about what he's done here is they've, they've looked at four 
different questions here. You know, the effects on the students who participated, the competitive effects, the effects on segregation, and the effects on uh, non-cognitive skills. And I think looking at uh, all those different angles is really important. So uh, it's a commendable project and even more commendable in the long term because they're going to keep tracking these students and also looking at uh, the longer term outcomes that I think we probably all agree are the more important ones for figuring out whether this worked or not. Uh, so I'm going to start off by just taking a step back and then sort of then proceeding to respond to, to what Pat said. So uh, the, the, the topic here is regulation, friend or foe, uh, for school choice, so not just, not just for vouchers. So I think it's worth just thinking about uh, the, 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 broader, the broader picture. So I think one really important thing to understand about uh, the education market is that it's very different from other markets. So if taking a Cato Institute perspective and thinking, starting off with a regulation is bad uh, uh, perspective, uh, may not make sense with regard to education because I would argue it's an inherently uncompetitive market. And it's not because the policies aren't right, it's because the nature of the market makes it very hard uh, to, to make it work in an efficient, uh, an efficient way. So the, the most prominent example of this is the information problem, right? To have a market work well, people need to be well informed. Uh, if any of you have ever uh, tried to, to choose a school for your child, you, I think, realize how uninformed you really are when you're making those choices. Uh, so information is a problem. Uh, even on things, even on the basic things that we think are measurable, like uh, the academic performance at the school. Uh, we get the test scores, but you know, I've, I've written a lot about value-added measures and these other factors that are driving the results other than the school. Uh, so, so I think we're, we're much, we're, we're not very well informed, or we're probably less well informed than we actually think we are. Uh, a second reason is simply there's so many different outcomes that we're trying to achieve in education, uh, some of which are very hard to measure. So when we think about things like uh, preparing citizens, uh, you know, something that after listening to the Republican debate uh, yesterday, it should be very prominent in our minds that we should be preparing people to vote in ways that maybe we're not right now. Um, you know, the arts uh, and, and, uh, and other non-academic outcomes. Having a standardized test for, for the arts is probably not the way to go. So how are we going to know whether we have a good arts program or not? These things are just, uh, are just hard to measure, and we have a lot of different things that we ask of schools. So that just makes it very hard to measure performance, and if we can't measure performance well, then the market is not going to be very efficient, no matter what we do, whether we have regulation or not. Uh, but, it, but it suggests that getting the, getting the government involved, in, at least in providing information uh, to families, is going to be uh, something the government needs to do, which is going to involve regulation. Uh, the second thing is we're not only worried about efficiency, we're not only worried about whether the market works in the usual sense, but we're worried about equity uh, when we think about education, much more so than we are in, in other markets. Uh, so I think there's pretty wide agreement on this idea that every, everybody needs to be uh, well-educated, to be, uh, again, a good citizen, to be a member of, of the community, uh, and that education has become so important in society that you know, some would even call it a right. Now, whether you think it's a right or not uh, is probably beside the point here. The key thing is that education is so important to have an opportunity in life uh, that we have to make sure uh, everybody has that opportunity. So. Uh, so again, the point here is that we, the, the market for education, more than probably any other market, needs regulation. Uh, so that's, that's point number one. Uh, then kind of drilling down to something more specific here, uh, it, looking at the New Orleans case and looking at Louisiana, 
it's, a, it's a great place to look at this because we have not only a voucher program, but we also have the expansive charter school system uh, in New Orleans that came about uh, after Katrina. So uh, thinking about the experiences there, I think reinforces the idea that, that regulation uh, might be effective. So just to sort of summarize, if you haven't seen these results, before Katrina was a fairly traditional district, after Katrina, they shifted to a, an almost all charter system in which they closed down schools based on, uh, the, mainly on their test scores. Uh, they got rid of attendance zones so that parents could choose among schools. They eventually adopted a, a lottery-based enrollment system. So now if, uh, if you wanna go to a public school in New Orleans or one of the voucher schools, you have to fill out this form and, and you end up getting assigned by lottery. Uh, to that system. There's no tenure anymore. There's no teacher union in New Orleans. So it's a very expansive uh, market-based system, but it's still a heavily regulated system, probably the most heavily regulated uh, system that there is. Having the centralized enrollment system uh, is unusual. Actually shutting down low-performing schools, they've shut down more than uh, 35 of uh, roughly 85 schools over the last uh, 10 years, which is a pretty uh, gigantic number and certainly larger than you'd see in other places. Again, reflecting a very high regulatory environment and a, and a strong government role. So what's been the effect of all this? Well, if you look at the measurable outcomes, it's pretty impressive. So uh, test scores increased by about 15 percentile points for the district as a whole, right? So, so to take a whole district up 15 percentile points, when you just saw Pat present essentially the opposite result uh, for the voucher program. Uh, now that didn't happen immediately, right? It didn't happen in the first couple of years. Uh, it took a while uh, for the regulations to take hold. They shut down low-performing schools. They replaced them with new schools. Uh, and it really uh, it wasn't until they did that and probably was the result of those actions that led to the positive results. So we, we just think about this question of regulation from the standpoint of charter schools. Uh, looking at New Orleans uh, is the suggestive evidence that regulation is gonna be helpful. You can also look at this comparing New Orleans to other places. So if you look at a place like Detroit, which is where I'm from originally, uh, the results there are, I think, just by just about all accounts, terrible, right, in the charter school sector. It's a, it's a, it's a huge mess in Detroit. Uh, hasn't worked very well, in part, uh, I think, because it's a very unregulated market, that there's very little oversight over the schools uh, in those cases. Very rarely does a school close down, <clears throat> and certainly not based on performance reasons. Um, we're, about, we're gonna release uh, some studies uh, here in the next couple of months that show more explicitly the role of, of closure and, and basically removing funding from schools, uh, from, from especially the charter schools in New Orleans and what effect that had uh, not only on the students uh, who were in the schools at the time, but also on the students uh, longer term as, as the, the closed schools were replaced with other schools. Uh, and those results too are gonna show that that had a, a substantially positive effect on student outcomes uh, in the long term. All right, so the charter school evidence, I think, is, it suggests that regulation is gonna have a positive role. So why do we see a different result in the voucher case? Uh, now, granted, the, the, regula the regulations, even, even though they uh, are stronger probably on the voucher uh, program in Louisiana than in other states, are much weaker than they are in the charter school sector. Uh, so, so, uh, so that's important to recognize. Um, so I think there are a few possible reasons. Pat sort of outlined, I think, the, the possible reasons, and he alluded to something I've been writing about on my, my Education Week blog over the last couple of months about the, the, the possible interpretations here. So I do think that the, the fact that the, the students receiving vouchers are taking the state standardized test that the public schools are taking is a, is a substantial contributor here, and Pat put a 30% or so estimate on how big that effect could be. I think it's probably bigger than that. Uh, and if you just think about it this way, if you, if you have the students uh, taking one curriculum, 
or take, learning a certain material, but you test them on something else, they're probably not going to do very well on the test, right? It's, that's sort of a common sense way of looking at it. And in the voucher program, the, these private schools didn't have to, to, until the voucher program came into being, none of the students had to be on that curriculum or, or taking that test. There was no reason for them to be aligned uh, to the state test. Uh, so it's not surprising that the first year results were, were really, uh, really poor, nor is it surprising then that they were, they were fairly quickly able to adapt in that second year to try to get the, the, the results up so they could con continue participation in the voucher program. Because aligning the curriculum isn't that hard to do once you realize that's the problem. Uh, right, so you you can uh, you you can adjust what what's being taught. You can make sure, and, and a lot of schools do this in the public schools as well. As we get close to testing time, you know, having them see see some similar items on the test. We know this happens in the public schools too, uh, so that they're more prepared for them. So they're going to do better. Uh, so that so that that not only sort of stem the tide, the downward trend, but also allowed them to catch up a bit. Uh, so I so I would say uh, that the 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 results that, we, that he presented are consistent with the pro-regulation argument. Uh, so, so the initial dip could be explained by the fact that they didn't know that they were going to see those negative results and then in the first year. That was their first indication that something was wrong. Uh, then they responded, and the easiest way to respond to something like that uh, is through adjusting the curriculum. And it's hard to improve in other ways. So you're not suddenly going to become a better private school uh, in one year. Right? So, so to, to, see that, to see that sudden shift in the results between the first and second years suggests it was something that was relatively easy to do, like aligning the curriculum. So I think, that the, I think the pro-regulation story is most consistent with, what, uh, with what's being seen there. And, and especially the, um, uh, well, I should, let me put it differently. The testing story is most consistent with uh, the, the, the story that, uh, that Pat's uh, telling there. Uh, I, and I agree with him what he said at the end about the effect of regulation. That we really don't know what effect uh, that's having. That not all the schools are participating. Um, I think it, it, there could be a lot of reasons for that. So it could be the schools are not participating because of the regulation. Uh, I suspect a lot of it is is broader than that. That it's uh, substantially because the private schools in New Orleans, uh, in Louisiana generally, are not really that interested in serving that population. A lot of the private schools started to avoid the desegregation movement uh, in the 70s. Uh, that's, that's where the schools started from. So the idea that they're suddenly going to become uh, the, the schools that are going to be serving the students that they were frankly trying to avoid uh, many decades before, uh, it suggests this is not a regulation question. This is about who they want to serve. Um, private schools, you know, and, and looking at the at, at the uh, the more elite college prep uh, schools, they're also generally not that interested in in this program and and being being and serving these students. Not because they have any ill will towards these students, but they have an alumni base. They have their expensive tuition levels. Uh, it's what they're uh, it's, it's what they're used to doing. Uh, and it would be hard for them to, to adapt. And, and maybe then, as a result, the ones that are getting in really just aren't very good at it. And this, is, this goes to the, the point about maybe these schools just aren't very good, um, even the ones who are getting at it, because they're not used to serving uh, this, this student population. So, uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens next. I'm glad that, that Pat's going to continue uh, uh, following, uh, following these students and seeing what happens, because I think the story is definitely not entirely clear uh, at this point. Thanks, Pat, and thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for braving the snowstorm that was predicted to be here. Uh, so first, I want to promise to make education great again 
we're going we're gonna to have the best schools. We're going to hire the best teachers, the best principals. And Mexico is going to pay for all of it. Uh, sorry, those are the wrong notes. Uh, well, first, I want to step back and I want to talk about uh, the, the, the system in general. So about 30 years ago, the Reagan administration released a report, A Nation at Risk, which found if an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might, have, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. Uh, so Ted Cruz would have carpet bombed all of the schools had he been president at the time. Uh, so what's happened in the 30 years since then? Well, there was a study, uh, this is from Harvard University, but it's based on the findings of the 2011 PISA, which is an international exam. Uh, and here you have all of the, the different uh, industrialized nations that took the exam mixed in with uh, some of our states. You see Massachusetts uh, did the best out of all of our states, but the US average is actually on page two. We were 32nd in math. If you want to find Washington, DC, there it is, the very last, uh, behind all of the other states, sandwiched in between Thailand and Mexico. Uh, that's what about $30,000 per year per pupil will get you. Uh, so maybe this is because uh, you know, DC is spending too much, but maybe the other states aren't spending enough. But if you actually compare uh, performance and resources, you see that there is no strong correlation. Uh, so all of the nations that are you know, uh, in the top left quadrant there uh, are spending less per pupil than the United States, but have higher performance per pupil on the PISA. There's actually a lot of research that shows that just spending more money is not the solution. As a matter of fact, uh, if you look at spending in the United States over the last uh, several decades, since 1970, adjusted for inflation, we've just about tripled the amount that we're spending per pupil. Uh, now, part of that, of course, would be explained by uh, the introduction of special needs students, but that's, that's a small percentage overall. And test scores, uh, if you look at the, uh, the NAEP, the nation's report card for 17-year-olds, uh, you know, so you know, the students that are just about completed their uh, high school uh, education, uh, we see that the test scores pretty much over that period were flat. So what's the solution? Uh, Milton Friedman had a theory that uh, just as in other markets, if you had freedom, if you had competition, if you had choice, you would have a system that would uh, produce uh, innovation and greater efficiency and higher quality. And no state has actually put Milton Friedman's vision of a universal voucher program into effect, but a few have come uh, not close, but have had smaller programs that are, you know, even the ones that have wide uh, eligibility tend to attract right now uh, a smaller number of students. But we find that the uh, performance uh, on uh, gold standard studies, uh, we find uh, evidence that there is a positive impact on performance. Uh, here we have all of the uh, studies, up until this year anyway, uh, showing all of them showed a positive impact uh, Many on, uh, on average for all students, some only for certain uh, cat subcategories of students, usually uh, low-income minority students who are, have the, are the most choice-deprived initially. Only one study found no visible effect until this year where we had the two studies of Louisiana that found a negative impact on those students. Uh, in terms of the impact on public schools, we have uh, about two dozen studies, not randomized controlled trial because you can't uh, force districts to adopt one policy or another, but uh, we have uh, all of them found a positive effect. Usually, again, very modest, but statistically significant, one that found no visible impact. Even the Louisiana study found a positive impact on the public school students. 
So what went wrong in Louisiana? There are certainly a number of factors at play. Um, the two previous speakers uh, identified several of them. I would like to look in particular at the, uh, the theory that regulation is, is behind a lot of this. So first we look at the private schools that participated and we find that uh, very few private schools participated, only one third. Now it could be, as uh, Dr. Harris uh, said, that, that uh, some of these schools anyway weren't interested in uh, serving low-income students, but we find that in other states that have programs that are serving low-income students, uh, you know, Florida, for example, where they have a scholarship tax credit program for low-income students, we see that 60% of the schools in the state are participating. And in Indiana, which has a voucher program uh, statewide, they have 50% uh, you know, participation. Uh, Louisiana it has a very small number of schools that, that participate. And we find that there is a difference between these two different categories of students, the, the, or schools. The schools that chose not to accept voucher students, on average, had a 3% rate of growth in the last decade. And the schools that did participate saw a decrease, on average, of about 13%. Now, if the enrollment trends are a rough proxy. We can't prove this, but if they are a rough proxy, then it would suggest that the higher quality schools chose not to participate, while lower quality schools chose to participate. And we have to ask, why is that? Now, the study itself did a check, and it looked at the difference in performance uh, among the participating schools and found that there was no correlation among the participating schools between their growth or decline in enrollment and their uh, their performance, uh, but uh, so these are hypothetical numbers. So you know you, you could have you could you could plot these and you could find a low R squared, in other words, a, a low correlation. But if you were to step back and look at the entire picture, if this theory is right that regulation uh, was keeping the the, the, the uh, higher quality schools out, uh, you very might very well might see a higher correlation. Again, we, we don't know. We don't have this data. This is what we would predict. But we, again, these, are, these aren't real figures up here. So then why did so few schools participate? I do think it comes down to two things, uh, money and regulations, in addition to the, the other things that we talked about. But we'll look at these two. So uh, the school choice regulations, uh, as they mentioned earlier, that uh, private schools are not allowed to set their own admissions standards. They have to, if they're oversubscribed, they have to have a lottery and accept whoever shows up. Uh, also, they have to teach the state test, which is aligned to the state curriculum. Uh, now, uh, Dr. Wolf, uh, along with uh, a few colleagues, did a study for the American Enterprise Institute where they asked, uh, they, they surveyed private schools, they asked non-participating private schools, why didn't you participate? The number one reason was fear of future regulations. But we saw a lot of things, uh, you know, the amount of required paperwork and reports, concerns about testing, requirements to teach the state's curriculum, concerns about administering the state accountability test. All of these are, you know, more than 50% say that it played a role in the decision not to participate. All of these essentially have to do with regulations and testing. And uh, many of the other top ones have to do with uh, their character or identity. In other words, related to the admission standards. So students might, might not be prepared for our our academic rigor, the effect uh, on our independence character identity, the effect on our school's admissions policies, um, the effect of participation on our academic standards, uh, maintaining the school's religious identity, and that students might not be able to pass the admissions tests. And so they actually have some data to back this up as well. So they asked um, 
schools that were participating, how has participation in the scholarship program changed your school's approach to standardized testing? Now, this is, again, among the participating schools. And we see that testing in Louisiana uh, increased dramatically in the participating schools, which we didn't see uh, in, in these other states, Florida and, and Indiana. Uh, so we would expect, actually, that uh, the test scores are likely to rise over the next few years. but. That's just not, that's not showing necessarily an improvement in the quality of the schools so much as the adjustment to the test. So I, I definitely buy um, Professor Harris's theory that uh, testing plays a role here. But if testing plays a role in the original negative result, then testing is also uh, going to explain a good chunk of, of the uh, improvement in the second and third year. Uh, on the money side of things, the average voucher was about $5,000, which is about half of what uh, they were spending in the public schools per pupil. But this is actually a price ceiling, not the 5,000, but it's either the lesser of what they were charging before in tuition or 90% of the state and local funding per student of the school's district school. Now, what happens when you have a price ceiling? Well, basic economics, here we have supply, demand, and the price ceiling, and it leads to a shortage. Again. This is suggestive, but not conclusive. We don't know that this is actually what's going on, but this is what economic theory would predict. Uh, and we do see that uh, you know, this is a question asking school, has your school had to turn away scholarship students due to excess demand? And we see that in Louisiana, uh, this is much more the case. About four out of 10 schools said, yes, we had to turn away students because of excess demand than in other states. Uh, and since joining the program, how has the number of scholarship students in your school that your school enrolls changed? Um, Less than half said the number has increased, and a sizable number said it has actually stayed the same or, or, or even decreased. Uh, moreover, are you going to, what about your future plans for enrolling students? Um, very few, only two out of 10 about, uh, said that they were going to increase enrollment of, for scholarship students, whereas in other states, they're saying, yes, bring them in. Uh, so in other words, you have a situation where they're filling, for the most part, empty seats, uh, they're inverse, reversing some of their negative enrollment trends, but they're not expanding. They're not, they're not growing. Now, if we want a system, if we want an education system that, has, that fosters innovation and that grows to scale, I think that what we need is a market. We need schools to have the freedom to set the curriculum that they believe is best, and we need parents to have the freedom to choose among those schools. And over time, like in other markets, those better schools are going to attract more students. There's going to be an incentive for them to grow. Uh, right now, unfortunately, with the uh, subsidized district school system as the 800-pound gorilla in the room, it, uh, it uh, crowds out these other alternatives. So uh, I, I believe, uh, this is not just a belief, this is based on the evidence from numerous other, uh, you know, pretty much every other type of market, um, where there are also information asymmetry problems, where we also have concerns about equity, but we find that the market does a better job of delivering uh, for everybody, including the poor. Uh, so with that, I thank you, and I will hand it over to Mike Petrilli. Great job, everybody. Uh, I am not going to try to compete with, with Neil and, and Jason on the jokes, though I was uh, very impressed. It's, it's hard to compete not only with them, but also with the uh, spectacle that we all witnessed last night. So uh, maybe, maybe we'll just leave it there. Um, a, a couple of serious notes. First of all, I, we haven't said this yet, but I want to express condolences about 
the loss of Andrew Coulson, uh, the great director here of the uh, Cato Center for uh, Educational Freedom. Uh, lost him way, way too young, and I didn't know Andrew well, but what I knew of him, he was an incredibly principled man and had a lot more to give. So uh, very sorry to, uh, to lose him and thinking about him today. Um, also, it's, it's important to note, this hasn't come up yet. You know, this is not just one of these hypothetical think tank conversations. Back in Louisiana, my understanding is, uh, lawmakers are very much debating killing this program uh, and pointing to the results of these studies as the reason for doing so. Uh, I think uh, we, we are here to have some debate about interpreting the studies, but I think all of us would agree that that's a terrible idea, uh, that it is way too early to make a decision about the effectiveness of this program. In fact, uh, as the data show, we're seeing uh, achievement rebound. Uh, now, Louisiana faces a big budget crunch. They're looking for ways to save money. You might not agree with me, but look, I'm, I'm thinking if, if you've got to choose between a voucher program for low-income kids in Louisiana or a tax deduction uh, that is mostly being used by upper-income uh, people in Louisiana, to me, uh, you know, the, the voucher is not the place to look. But uh, So hoping that, uh, that the folks in Louisiana give this program a chance to see what happens, certainly in year three and beyond. So at least wait for Pat's data to come out. Right, Pat? Hurry up. Get going. Okay. So uh, what, how to make sense of all of this? Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that all of our positions uh, haven't changed as a result of these findings from Louisiana. Now, that's not a, necessarily you know, an indictment uh, because, as, uh, certainly as Pat said, and even as Jason has written uh, many times in blog posts, the information we have is incomplete. Uh, certainly, we don't know for sure that the overregulation theory, for example, is exactly what's explaining these things. So, uh, you know, it is important to look at new information as it comes in, but we don't have enough information yet to, to change some of our basic underlying assumptions. Now, my impression is that that for Jason and Neil and others, uh, other libertarians, uh, you know, their argument is that we should keep virtually all regulations out of these programs, that having a bottom-up approach to competition uh, is, and real freedom, that that's going to lead to much greater performance than any top-down regulations, and in fact that these regulations can be a cure worse than the disease uh, because they can keep these good private schools out of the program, and if they stay on the sidelines, uh, then you're not going to be able to serve as many kids, you're not going to be able to get as much uh, high performance. Uh, I have labeled this position the, the choice purist uh, position, uh, and, and I totally understand it, respect it. Uh, some of us, though, would argue that we absolutely want to expand parental choice. We absolutely want there to be less regulation and a freer market system of schooling. Uh, but we want to combine the school choice with some basic quality control mechanisms. Uh, and, and we would make a huge distinction between, quote, regulation, as we usually think about it, micromanaging schools, admission processes, their curriculum, their class size, whether they can teach religion or not, how they teach science. We would put that on one, one side of the ledger. Very different to say, we want you to show whether or not the kids are learning. We want to find out whether uh, the public good here, the public's paying for these programs, whether the public is getting something for its dollars in terms of student learning. Uh, and that uh, while it's very imperfect right now, the best way we have to do that right now is to look at student achievement or other long-term outcomes. As Pat said, you could look at uh, high school graduation rates and other things. But as a short-term indicator, uh, tests are hard to beat. 
Um, and so we want to combine that school choice with the accountability for results. We agree on the rest of the regulations. We want to keep those as light as possible. Now, I've, I've called our position the choice realist position. When you come up with the labels, you get to give yourself a label that sounds pretty good. And I think, you know, choice, choice uh, realist sounds pretty good. Uh, and, and part of this comes from this hard-earned experience. This is not, again, hypothetical. We have been doing school choice in one form or another for 25 years in the voucher sector, in the charter school sector. And, and what do we know? Well, we, we know about the aggregate uh, performance of voucher programs in charter schools. It looks quite good. Uh, but we also know that if you, you know, go down to the school level, guess what? Uh, we mentioned pros and cons before. There are a lot of cons uh, in these programs, as in con artists, right? Uh, it is a little surprising to me, in fact, that we haven't had a Trump high school as a part of any of these programs, but that's an aside. Uh, but the, uh, you know, that, that, the, that there, when you go and you look at any of these voucher programs or you go and you look at any of these charter school programs, and we know this from on-the-ground work in Ohio where we do a lot of work, uh, there are some bad actors out there, right? There are some uh, people who will try to come in. There's, there's public money at the taking, and they will try to come in and, and defraud the public. Uh, you also have a problem of some schools that are well-meaning and doing the best they can, but they're mediocre. They, for one reason or another, they don't have what it takes uh, to actually educate kids, especially when you're talking about low-income kids uh, who are coming in with all kinds of challenges. It is hard uh, to do that job and do it well. So, uh, you know, we believe then, the choice realist, that you've got to have some mechanism to identify those schools that are either mediocre or fraudulent and have a way of kicking them out of the program. Right, that if you don't do that, uh, both performance will suffer, but also that the kids in those in particular schools will suffer, and that you can't just look at the aggregate performance. You've got to think about the individual schools as well. So we like what we see in New Orleans, where you know, the, the government has been very aggressive at closing down low-performing schools. Uh, we think in, in a voucher system, it makes sense for the government to have the authority to pull the right to receive public funding from schools that are not performing well. And we assume that there will be some of those schools. And if you do that, the program will be stronger. I think it would also mean that the program will be politically stronger uh, because taxpayers, policymakers will feel like their, their money's being protected and that kids are, are more likely to be well served. All right, so uh, that, that's sort of even going into this debate and into the Louisiana findings where, where we're at. So what do we know from Louisiana? Uh, first of all, there are some facts. One fact is we do know that a lot of schools in Louisiana sat out this program and that it's more than you see in most of these other programs around the country. Um, what we don't know for sure is whether the schools that sat out the program actually are higher performing schools. Uh, you know, I think, Jason, it's, it's interesting to look uh, at uh, the evidence that about enrollment. Uh, it's certainly you know, plausible that there is a connection between enrollment and quality, but we really don't know. That's, that's pretty weak evidence from my perspective. We also definitely don't know that the private schools sitting out the program are better at educating low-income kids, right? One thing to be a high-quality school for a population you're serving, middle-class, upper-middle-class kids, right? Suddenly turn around and, and bring in low-income kids and try to serve that population for the first time. Even some of the best schools might struggle with that. We just don't know. We, we just don't know. We also don't know why, for sure, these, these uh, private schools sat out the program. Now, you know, Jason talked about money and he talked about regulation. I want to drill down which regulations, right? Again, for people like me, I see a huge difference between regulations that are around, you know, how you do your daily affairs, how you run your school, and a requirement to take a test and report the results, right? Uh, 
And I would argue that there's very little evidence that it is, in fact, this requirement to take the test that is keeping those other private schools from participating, right? Even in the surveys, I mean, those were pretty far down on the list compared to some of the other stuff that they listed. We did a study at Fordham, at the Fordham Institute, where we found similar findings that, you know, there are schools out there that are concerned about that, but it tends to be a fairly small number of schools. They tend to be more the sort of upper-end independent schools that, that worry about that. Uh, you know, so that, that's some of it, but there's not very much. Where there is a huge amount of concern in any survey you do is around this question of identity and admissions processes, right? That, to me, makes a ton of sense, right? That, that you start to say, which, which story, which, which explanation makes sense? That these private schools, they really wanted to participate in this program, they really want to take in these low-income kids, but they just didn't want to have to take that state test. Uh, again, it's only the voucher kids that would take the state test and have those results reported. Maybe. Or, as Doug said, let's imagine a different scenario, right? You're mostly serving white, middle-class, upper-middle-class kids. Uh, the question is, do you want to participate in this voucher program? You get less money from the voucher than it probably takes to educate these kids that are coming in. The kids coming in are low income. Uh, they are likely to be low performing. And they don't have to meet the same admissions requirements that all the other kids in the school had to meet. Right? So now you're going to go to your parents who are shelling out of their own pocket significant tuition and say, you know, we're going to give basically get, let these kids come in. It's going to cost us money to do so. Uh, oh, and by the way, you know, we might have to slow down the pace of instruction in our classes or something, you know, because these kids are going to need a lot of help catching up. That is a tough sell, it seems like to me, to make to a, uh, to a school uh, community, much less the racial dynamic here, which, you know, is this question mark. If these were, some of these schools were segregation academies, uh, created, you know, way back when, uh, you know, you throw that into the mix, you say, I don't know, that, that's, again, big question marks. Um, so, I, to me, the admissions piece makes a whole lot more sense than the testing piece. Now, again, my own view is I'm much more comfortable letting private schools use their admissions processes in voucher programs, like is allowed here in Washington, D.C., and in several other places, uh, then I, and, and I've got no problem with testing. So, I'm, you know, might just be seeing it through my eyes. But again, I think that's a more likely story. Um, so in conclusions, uh, yes, I think there are some regulations that are a problem. But I think it's the, the prohibition on admission standards that by far is the biggest program. Again, these other private schools, if they knew that, OK, at the very least, we can tell everybody, hey, we're going to let in some low-income kids, but they've got to meet our admissions requirements. They've got to demonstrate that they, they've got the academic potential. They're not way behind. They haven't had behavioral problems. I think that makes it a much easier sell followed by the price caps, right, and way distant concern, the testing concerns, okay? One last point, and it's really an empirical one, and maybe Pat or Doug, Doug uh, could, could help us figure this out. You know, we, we group all these voucher studies together, you know, the dozen studies that look at, uh, you know, randomized control, gold standard. It seems to me that these are very different kinds of programs and studies if, on the one hand, you've got some where the kids or get a you know, random selection into the program, but then the schools can require them to meet their admission standards. Very different from a program and a study where, uh, where there is no admissions requirement. I don't know how you compare those two. It may be that one of the ways, that one of the reasons that we have seen uh, achievement growth in other voucher studies is that allowing schools to maintain admission standards is an essential part of the intervention. Uh, and when you get rid of that, uh, you lose part of the intervention and you lose the impact.
So lots of stuff to talk about. Thanks for organizing it, Neil. All right, well, thank everyone. Uh, thank you, uh, Mike and Doug, and Pat and Jason. Um, so we're gonna get to the question and answers. Uh, I wanna say that think of a question now. I won't ask any of my own if other people have questions. I just wanna make a few comments. First of all, Pat, you did save yourself by saying nice things about my dissertation. And I'm sorry that our table is so small. You're really squeezed there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna move over so you can enjoy yourself at that whole table. Um, and I, as the moderator, even though I have opinions, you know, I work at Cato, I'm, I'm supposed to give my opinions. I'm going to stay neutral on this and just let other people tell Mike he's wrong. Um, and then I just one observation. I noticed that it's sort of like tie versus no tie as the teams. Um, no beard. Yeah, well, the, oh, that's right. Also beards versus no yeah. beards. Yeah. And, and see, I'm neutral because I have a tie but no beard. And so you can see right here that it will be totally fair and even-handed. You look more libertarian over here, don't you think? What's it, without the... Yeah, the, yeah, you know, no red tape around our neck. Well, yeah, some people just say sloppy. But, <laughs> um, Neil is on fire, man. Uh, that's, since I'm neutral, i got to do something, right? Okay, um, so are there, do, does anybody have a question out in the audience? If not, I'm prepared to to ask some, and we already have two. So the rules are wait for the microphone. You can see two people with microphones here. Uh, we ask you to say who you are, at least who you're affiliated with, and like I said to begin, you can actually make some comments, but please don't abuse the privilege, or I'll have you thrown out, um, or at least I'll, I'll stop you. Um, and so we have two actually right here, and since we have two microphones, oh, now we have a bunch of hands up. We have two microphones. We're going to start with you. You uh, did you have a question, sir? Over there. Then we're going to have this microphone go over there. Your your will be the first one. Then we'll go right over to you, so we can keep it moving. Hi, my name is Amat Fatani. I have uh, no affiliation right now. Uh, this question is for Mr. Petrilli and anyone else who wants to answer it. Actually. Your last point was about um, admissions criteria as part of the intervention. Given that we want to have equity, are there, have we ever tested any sort of intervention or is there any data on an intervention where we have catch-up classes or anything so that for the main part of a school you maintain a certain entry quality, but the people that maybe would still be in that district but don't meet those criteria have the chance to catch up and then join the main class at the end. Right, uh, great question. And I, I might pitch it over to Pat because I know he's done some uh, case studies in DC to get really inside how uh, the schools react to some of these programs. I think that there have been efforts like that. Uh, you know, definitely for, for schools that may not be used to serving a lot of low-income kids to design programs to help the new voucher recipients do better. Pat, is, you want to say anything yeah. about that? Uh, so that's a great question, but first I want to say that Mike Petrilli has at least made his own label more objective. His previous label was Opportunity Choice Realist Puppy Dog. So, <laughs> you know. it, it was too long on Twitter, though. That yeah. was a problem. Yeah. So... Uh, I've um, explored this idea in two of the voucher evaluations I've led. In, in D.C., what we found was in, in, uh, in D.C., the schools were allowed to 
uh, apply their standard admissions criteria to voucher students and establish which set of those voucher students were admissible to the program. This process took place prior to the lottery. So they weren't picking the exact student that, that they would get through the voucher program, but they were sort of declaring, the, these are the students who are admissible if they win a voucher. And then if any of those students won, they got in. Um, Still, there were a lot of Catholic schools in particular that served a lot of voucher students in the D.C. program. And the superintendent of Catholic schools said immediately in the first year they realized these kids were way behind. And so they had to institute a sort of concentrated effort, uh, particularly in the, in the area of reading, uh, in terms of boosting their, their reading skills and their reading ability uh, and, and so they had a sustained effort across the, the, the archdiocesan schools that were participating in the voucher program to, to improve the reading of the, of the voucher students. And that's where we saw some evidence of positive effects in our program evaluation. Over in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee, the original uh, urban voucher program does not allow schools to apply admission standards. They must accept all students, like, like the LSP, and we did some site visits there during our evaluation, and it was interesting because, because some of the high schools in particular had programs such as the ones you would suggest. They would accept voucher students. Um, they would do an initial assessment and see you know, where they are in terms of grade, grade readiness. And the ones that were way behind in grade readiness, they had a sort of summer camp for them, a sort of boot camp to get them up to speed so that they could be mainstreamed into the school's regular education program uh, when, when the school year began. Even then, they, uh, they included additional supports for these students, including after-school program um, and, and credit recovery programs, you know, Saturday programs and stuff like that, to, to provide regular interventions that allowed them to catch up. Just uh, quickly, though, on this, on this question of equity, uh, I highly recommend the book by James Tooley called The Beautiful Tree, published by the Cato Institute, which uh, James Tooley uh, goes around the world and looks at uh, private schools for the poor in some of the poorest nations in the world uh, and finds that you know even in rural China, in India, uh, in Nigeria and Lagos, uh, that there are schools that are serving the poorest of the poor people in the world and outperforming the uh, pu publicly subsidized public schools. Uh, likewise, um, Andrew Coulson, who uh, our, our recently uh, deceased uh, former director of the Department for Center, uh, the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute, that uh, Mike, thank you for those uh, kind words uh, about him. He had a, he published a book uh, in the 90s called Market Education, the Unknown History, where he looked across history and uh, across the world how uh, free market systems actually did provide education for the poor. And uh, he and, and uh, E.G. West, another uh, great uh, economist in England, uh, found that in, in the United States and England and elsewhere, before the introduction of universal compulsory education, that there were literacy rates north of 90%. Uh, you know, so you know, we should have voucher programs that uh, target the poor or a universal program where we uh, give an incentive for private schools to take in poor students, even by you know, for low-income families having a, a larger voucher. Um, but this idea that the market itself is going to leave poor people out, I think, just is not actually the case when we look across history and when we look across the world. Hey, can I ask, Pat, it, 
have there been any other gold standard studies of programs that uh, do not allow admissions standards? Uh, well, certainly, you know, so the Milwaukee is responsible for two of the gold standards and a silver standard study, and that, that does not allow the application of admission standards. The, um, the three-city study that I did with Paul Peterson of New York, Dayton, and D.C., there that was a partial tuition, privately funded scholarship program, and the schools were allowed to apply their admission standards. Um, as I said, D.C. Choice, there is this sort of compromise where you could declare students admissible um, if, they, if they won the scholarship but, but not pick the, the individual students. So there's, there's been a lot of, of variation, really. And then a lot of the gold standard studies were just replications of the three-city study. So they really are dominated by programs that did allow schools to apply their admission standards. Uh, now, Mike, I'm, I'm a, just warn you once, I'm actually the moderator, so you don't get to ask <laughs> well, the question. You know, but, but, you know, you ask if you're not going to do the job, I mean, you know, I'm not going to ask any room. I'm you know, a guy who does education policy, at least I know to raise his hand. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> anyway, okay, so we were next going over here, and then who, so, yep, microphone over there. One in the middle here. And then we'll get to the guy in the middle next. Okay. Uh, good afternoon. This uh, question is for Mr. Wolf again. I'd like to follow up on something you said about uh, including D.C. because we have been slowly but surely recovering from a deficit in our image as far as uh, education in general is concerned. So I wanted to know, since the Fenty administration, where he's been working to try to improve the quality and the physicality of the schools, have you seen any improvement with respect to the overall test scores, um, or have you had an, a chance to speak with Kyra Henderson or anyone from the directors of the educational department here about that? Well, sure, and I think the, the other people at this table could comment on that as well. Uh, DC has demonstrated one of the steepest improvements in achievement on the NAEP over the last decade. So the, the reforms of the district initiated initially by Michelle Rhee and continued by, by Kaya Henderson um, are, I mean, at least this, this descriptive evidence suggests that, that they are improving outcomes uh, for public school students with, within the district. Um, Basically, uh, the I, I mean, I haven't looked at it any more carefully than that. I don't know if there have been any more, more fine-grained analysis of that. But if you believe the NAEP, it's suggesting that scores are improving. But as Jason showed in his graphic, they have a long, long way to go. Okay, so next is right here in the middle. Thank you, Neil. I'm Patrick Linehan. I'm from George Mason University. And I have a question. I think it's mainly for, toward you, Pat. Uh, let see what uh, you can do. Uh, Mike mentioned a number of different characteristics of schools. And I was wondering if your report was able to tease out or examine some of the characteristics, such as pupil-teacher ratio of the other school, of the uh, schools that, that took the scholarship students, uh, size of the school, uh, uh, socioeconomic status of the uh, of the community uh, before and after uh, those things and and another one in particular especially when you talk about the admission standards there were there any special considerations given to special needs students special education students that if a school agreed to accept the any student in that if there was a special needs student did we try to look at them and and 
make sure that their needs were in fact met by those other schools that may not have done it uh, uh, routinely. Okay, uh, several good good questions in there. We are at the front end of examining the systematic differences between participating private schools and non-participating private schools in Louisiana. I will say that school size does seem to be um, a major uh, contributor and that it's, it's smaller schools are participating, larger schools are, are tending not to participate, and that might really overlap with the idea of if you have a large school that's fully enrolled, you don't, you don't need more students, uh, where, whereas the smaller schools uh, feel that they, they do. Um, but, but I think you know, we're at the front end of, of that process, and, and we'll learn a lot uh, when, we, when we study it more closely. We also are focusing specifically on children with special needs in this program. This program, with, based on the design of the bill, was particularly, particularly emphasized opportunities for, for children with special needs. They, they are auto-placed. Uh, in this program, if they want to attend a private school through the LSP, they're guaranteed uh, a placement before any of the other students are placed. Now, that makes it uh, impossible to apply our gold standard random assignment uh, approach, but we're looking at it in terms of quasi-experimentally, um, and, and we're particularly interested in, in how they do um, when they have, you know, their options are expanded like this, and we'll have a report on that out probably in, in five to six months. Very good. Yes, go ahead. I, I can learn, yeah. Really? Well, this is to answer questions no, no, before I get, you ask one. But go ahead. No, I, I, I go ahead. I want to ask you a question. Is that right? No, knock yourself right, out. so uh, <laughs> this is for Pat or Doug. Uh, we saw the aggregate results. Were there any private schools that were particularly low performing that were dragging down these scores? And second question for, for Jason then, if there were, would you support kicking those schools out of the program? I thought you were going to make a good statement, not ask questions. No, but you okay. told me to raise my hand if I had a question. Why don't I just give you the podium? I, okay. That sounds, yeah. okay. <laughs> I had a question with you first. Okay. I mean, I, we basically, I, I say this all the time. I evaluate school choice programs, and, and a school itself is not a program. Um, so we haven't yet looked at the school-by-school school results. And, in fact, the school-by-school school results, if you just look at those – you know, they're, they're confounded by, by people making all kinds of choices and choosing particular schools. We're able to avoid that with random assignment at the voucher level, but when it comes to students choosing schools, it's difficult to separate how much of student perf- subsequent student performance is because of who they are and how much is because of what the school did. That being said, I know that some of the schools, the lowest performing private schools in the program, have been excluded from the program as the back-end accountability system kicks in. And that's perhaps one reason for the decrease in enrollments that we saw between the 14-15 school year and the current school year. would I be in favor of kicking those schools out? No, because I, I don't think it's a wise move to eliminate a, a school that parents chose, which may be their least bad option. Uh, we don't know why a parent chose that school. Uh, maybe the, their kid was being bullied in their local public school. Maybe their local public school that they were assigned to was not as good. Uh, maybe there was a crime problem or a drug problem. Uh, so I, I put... We're never going to have a perfect system. Libertarians are not under the illusion that all private schools are good and all public schools are bad. Uh, We believe that given the fact that we'll never have a perfect system, what sort of mechanism is more likely to produce a wide diversity of options and foster quality and innovation? And we believe that the market, you know, free choice among parents and schools having the ability to operate as they believe is uh, best, 
is uh, proven over and over again uh, in, in, in a variety of, of industries to have better outcomes than um, Mike Petrilli sitting in an office deciding what quality is and, and top-down um, keeping schools or kicking schools out based on what he thinks quality is as opposed to what individual parents think it is. Okay, so just to follow up on that, I think the, the implication of what you're saying is that this evidence is irrelevant, right, to the, to the decision about what the policy should be. Uh, in some sense, uh, I, I don't think it's entirely irrelevant in, 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 in terms of, it's irrelevant, I would say, in terms of how we should design the, the policy in terms of, you know, should we kick people out or not? But I think it's very important that we know how well these programs are working. Test scores do measure something. They are important. They're not, they're not everything, but I think that they are probably a pretty decent proxy for quality, and especially on, you know, we want schools to be doing a whole bunch of different things, uh, and these, you know, math and ELA are two areas that are very, very important. Uh, so I do want uh, that information. But again, um, education is not unique in terms of having an information asymmetry problem, uh, right? I mean, there was the Lemons problem that uh, I forget who it was that won a Nobel Prize for finding how the market can solve that. There are many industries that solve that. I can, you know, very quickly, I can think of one, which is uh, uh, kosher certification. You know, when, when Jews came to the New World uh, about a century ago, uh, they found that, uh, you know, in the, in the old world, you knew the local butcher, you knew the local kosher baker. Uh, here, it was all industrialized, and so how can we solve this information asymmetry? I don't know if what they're serving me is kosher. Well, we need, them, we need the government to step in. So can so, I just step in and assert sure. that the education market is a little bit different from well, I'll, the kosher I'll, I'll explain. I'll explain it, why, why and, there's, and can, there's well, a... Well, let me ask just one other clarifying yeah. question, because you keep... Uh, uh, alluding to the, some other other market that is somehow similar to education, without actually naming such a market that has somehow I'm saying that education that have exactly the same property. Let, let me so just what step is, in what for is one second. Yeah. You guys keep asking the questions, but I'm the moderator. Right. <laughs> I, 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 I'll say that's true. I, you did. I don't uh, think education is actually so different from all of the other markets that are out there. So what I'm saying about the, the kosher laws is that this is only a, a question of information asymmetry uh, that I'm that I'm addressing. The, the government got involved uh, and did not do a very good job um, for a number of reasons I, I get into in a blog post, but uh, the government had to get out because it was blatantly unconstitutional. So then what happens? Does that mean that kosher consumers don't have uh, an ability to find out if a product's kosher? No. More than 300 kosher certifying agencies stepped in uh, over, you know, today, uh, starting then over a, about a century ago and we're able to provide information to consumers. And I can travel to you know, South Dakota into a town where no Jew has ever set foot before and I can get kosher food. Now, observant Jews are a fraction of 1% of the population and yet I can get kosher food anywhere. There are many, many more parents who care about getting a quality education for their kids in this country. And there are multiple ways, if we had a free market education, that we could actually solve this information asymmetry problem. You could have like underwriters, laboratories, uh, you know, uh, private certification. You could also have uh, private expert reviewers, sort of like uh, consumer reports. You could have uh, user reviewers like Yelp and Amazon. And these are, these are ways that parents will be able to find information that is, uh, that that meets their needs, but also is much more comprehensive than just a simple test score. Yeah, one, one thing, uh, and I, 
I'm not just saying this because I feel like I'm getting trampled. Uh, but we do have some other audience uh, questions. So go ahead, just, real fast. Just, and I appreciate it. it's not a circus-like atmosphere, as has <laughs> happened in other debates I've heard about. Um, but we, I do want to get back to the audience. Yeah, just so real very fast. quickly. I mean, there are four or five different ways in which the education market is different. Information, I think, is, the, is a huge problem. Uh, I, th I would say it's also inherently uncompetitive because you're always going to have very few options to choose from in education right? because geography is so important. I got, and you I'm need to have a certain size. You know, school has to be a certain size. There are only going to realistically be a few options to choose from, except in maybe New York City, where you've got a subway system and can get all over the place. So it's always going to be on. You go on and on about the ways in which education is different. So again, this kosher comparison thing, I think, is just not all that helpful. Okay, I got, I got to stop you there. We'll, sure. we'll get back to it if we can. Um, but the, the lady over there, and then the man right here. So. She was first, he's second, we're gonna try and go as fast. If you can get the microphone right next to him, and as soon as we're done answering her question, we're gonna move on to his. Hi, Ashley Carter from Independent Women's Forum. Uh, just piggybacking off of the question this gentleman had down here, I know the focus of the conversation wasn't on DC uh, specifically, but we uh, talked and there were several slides that focused on DC. Um, because DC, we spend, we end up spending the most amount of money per student, per pupil, uh, and yet we're still the worst performing area in the country. Uh, Mr. Wolf says that the NAEP scores have showed a drastic improvement um, upon, uh, uh, in the past few years, since Michelle Rhee and then uh, Ms. Henderson's uh, takeover, but um, yet we're still, we still have a long, long way to go. Uh, do you ha have any proposed uh, recommendations on some of the things that we can do and some of the changes that you'd like to see. And that goes out to the whole panel. I'm just going to ask the panel to be sort of quick because I do want to get to at least one more question. I'll cede my time to my colleagues. Mike, do you have anything I have one general observation that applies to DC and applies to everywhere else. We don't know, we don't measure school performance well, right? So this is one of the things Mike uh, held this uh, design competition uh, recently for ESSA, which now opens the door to a much better dis measuring school, public school performance differently. But one thing that I think we're seeing in Louisiana and elsewhere is that we're moving towards a single structure of regulation and accountability for all schools receiving public funds. Uh, and that's certainly how it's working in Louisiana. And I think that's what we're going to see going forward. And we don't measure any of them well. Uh, and we could. So it's not like we can't. There, there are ways in which we could do a much better job you know, moving more towards value-added measures, which I think is actually the Achilles heel of any, uh, any effort to get low-income students into private schools. That's the Achilles heel. There's no way you're going to get large numbers of students uh, to do that, get the schools to agree to that, unless they're going to be evaluated fairly, and they're not evaluated fairly, nor, nor are the schools in DC public or private, because we just don't measure it well, and we don't have a wide enough range of measures. So I would suggest that for DC and, and for everybody else. Yeah, look, DC is is in a much better place than before, and it's partly DCPS, but it's also, I would argue, much more because of this incredible charter school sector that we have here that uh, Credo data and others uh, show are, you know, that the charters are vastly outperforming uh, the district schools here in D.C. Uh, and gotten a lot better over time. And part of that is because we have a charter school authorizer here who has not been afraid to shut down the low-performing schools. Now, there's no doubt that Jason is right. That is a form of paternalism because these are schools that parents have chosen. And, and the government comes in and says, we are going to remove that choice from you. Um, but uh, the argument is, look, this is a public good and a private good. Right? This is not just the kosher market. Uh, we all uh, 
pay for public education because we know that as a country we're better off if our neighbor's children are well educated and not just our own. So, you know, the, the, the idea here is we're going to, you know, it, it's important to take that step uh, if you want to protect kids, if you want to protect taxpayers, if you want to get better performance overall. I'm hopeful that we see the charter movement continue to get better and continue to grow. Eventually, that's going to mean uh, finding more and more ways to get uh, the, the buildings for charters that the taxpayers have already paid for in D.C. public schools, these, in many cases, brand new, beautiful buildings uh, that charter schools should have access to as well. Okay, right here, I'm afraid this is probably going to be the last one we have a chance to take. So, Jason, got to start on my question, um, which is about parents, and I know that tests are irresistibly wonderful for researchers because it's so concrete. Um, but I'm interested in whether this particular population we're talking about has data on the satisfaction of parents and how that might condition or relate to or whether it relates to the discussion at hand um, about uh, parent satisfaction. Um, I know in, in the, for instance, in the homeschooling community, if you look at the top reasons why people choose homeschooling, very often it isn't for some positive good which they perceive they can do better than everybody else. Very often it's a re reaction from some negative which, with, with, which they wish to withdraw their children from. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm very aware of the parents and that's not part of this research or discussion yet. Is there any way that can be brought in to shed any light? So uh, I don't know that we have parent satisfaction data in Louisiana for that. I would have to turn to these guys. But I do know that a number of, of states that have school choice programs, there have been parent satisfaction surveys um, in New Hampshire, in Georgia, for example, both of them uh, north of 96% uh, satisfaction for parents that were participating in the program. Um, also, uh, Arizona's education savings account program, uh, where there was 100% satisfaction relative to the private, the, relative to the public school that they had previously attended. Uh, so yes, parents are generally much more satisfied uh, with with these programs. And just I want to clarify with regard to kosher certification. I'm not saying that the two markets are entirely uh, the same. The point is that that the market was able to solve an information asymmetry problem as soon as the government got out of the way. Okay, and I'll just add to what Jason said, um, is we don't have parent satisfaction survey data uh, regarding the Louisiana Scholarship Program. And in part, it's because in the previous evaluations of voucher programs, the positive effects of private school choice on parent satisfaction are so consistent and so large that it's sort of not worth, I mean, we, we sort of thought as researchers, you have scarce resources, it's not worth examining that question um, anymore because it's resolved. It's, 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 it's a settled issue that parents are more satisfied when they get access to private school choice. They're more satisfied with the schools. Now, in terms, if you, if you get to a fine level of granularity, they tend to be even more satisfied if their child is in a subgroup that was positively affected in terms of achievement effects of the program. Um, if their child was in a subgroup that didn't demonstrate positive achievement effects, they're still more satisfied than the control group with the school, but they aren't as satisfied as the parents of students who's, who uh, were in a subgroup that showed clear positive achievement effects. All right, Doug, you get the last word. So, so I wanted to come back to this, this idea you know, Jason mentioned about uh, you know, the government getting out of the way, and that that's the main problem here with the information. That there's, there's no evidence of that, right? So 
there's nothing stopping a, stopping somebody from from stepping up and creating that kind of a system. The government is not standing in the way of doing that. So I think you know, we keep going back to sort of knee-jerk anti-government, anti-regulatory thing without any any good reason for it. In some cases, I'm not saying the government always does the right thing either, but uh, let, let, let's uh, let's try to follow the evidence. And I think we need to be care more careful about the comparisons that we're making because in that case, there, there's no reason that, that there's nothing the government's doing to stop that from happening. All right, and with that, I have to draw this to a close. I want to thank everybody who came. I especially want to thank our panelists. Uh, Doug, even though you gave sort of a non-Cato answer at the end there, <laughs> you will be invited back. Pat's invited. Jason. Even Mike can come back to Cato. I think it went so well. Um, and if you have more questions for them, I'm sure they would happy to be accosted by you on your way and their way to lunch. Lunch will be, uh, you go out this hallway up the spiral staircase, and you'll get to the next floor and you'll see lunch is being served. There are also restrooms available on the lower level of the first floor and the second floor. And with that, I thank you all very much.